Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my curious caterpillars. I am Diana Kander, and you are listening to the season finale episode of Professional AF. I know, me too, you guys. I started this show to follow the same curiosity methodology that I was teaching to large organizations on how they could keep improving and innovating themselves. And this year, I decided to turn the tables on myself and made a list of 49 different things that I wanted to improve. Well, about myself. And each week, I followed this curiosity protocol and spoke to experts to learn what I didn't know. See, I've learned that no matter what you're trying to accomplish, there's this list of things that you think you need to do to get there. But what do you know? You've never done this crazy thing before. See, there's this other list of blind spots, things that you'd never guess were even important, but they're actually going to be a lot more helpful in helping you accomplish this goal. And the thing about the blind spots is that you can't figure them out for yourself. So that's what I've been doing each week is talking to people that might help me figure out the secrets to accomplishing the goals that I want for myself. The first 10 episode season has been a blast. Thank you so much to everybody who's reviewed the show, shared it with your friends, and joined the Facebook group. It's called Professional AF Podcast Insiders. I've so enjoyed the experience of getting to know all of you. So stay tuned after this episode to find out what happens after this show. I tell you about it right now, but I just don't want to take up any more time before you get to hear my amazing interview with Annie Duke. Most people know Annie as a professional poker player. She's won numerous poker championships and millions of dollars in prizes. I got to know her in 2004 when I really got into poker. My first book was actually a business novel that took place at the World Series of Poker and used poker hands to teach important innovation lessons. So when I saw Annie, one of the few women who are even competing in the tournaments, keep winning, keep being the only woman at the final table one after another, and keep doing it with class and style, I became a huge fan. What I didn't know about Annie until doing research for the show is that she graduated from Columbia University and then graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. She won a fellowship from the National Science Foundation, and she has a doctorate in cognitive psychology. Annie is an entrepreneur, a committed advocate for important causes, a mother, a wife, and the author of several books, including my favorite and the subject of our discussion today, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. Today, Annie's going to tell us why you should focus on process rather than outcome to decide whether you've made a good decision, why there's a competition going on all the time between your short-term wants and your long-term growth, our mistaken belief on how we form our assumptions and beliefs about the world. Hint, you're not as objective as you think. An incredible way to get people to question their assumptions and beliefs in a way that they're not naturally inclined to do. The value of thinking of your work projects as bets that you're placing. And how to identify the habits that your team rewards and understand whether you're actually helping your cause. In the Cander family, we have a saying, last one, best one. It means that whatever you're doing, make the last rep, the last try, your best effort. And this episode is certainly that for this season. I hope you enjoy this amazing conversation on Professional AF. Andy Duke, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I am a huge poker fan. I have been a huge Andy Duke fan since 2004. I know that's, that's a big year for you. You got a lot of fans that year. Uh, when I was in law school, I wrote a paper on how poker strategy should be the basis of all real estate negotiations. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And then... Uh, following through on how poker should be the strategy for everything. I actually, my first book on launching innovative products was uh, an allegory that took place at the World Series of Poker. And so every lesson was teaching entrepreneurs good startup decision-making through individual poker hands. 
I love that. I'm a big believer. But for those people who didn't spend their third year of law school playing up to 12 hours of poker a day, can you explain why understanding poker strategy is basically understanding good decision making and can make every one of us better in our careers? I can, but wait, I, I want to rewind. A yes, little. sure. <laughs> How do you do your third year of law school and play that much poker? That's what I'm trying to figure out now. Uh, well, you can play <laughs> it on the internet. And I made my third year of law school, I structured it in such a way I knew I wasn't going to be a litigator, that I was going to do transactional law. So I didn't have to read a single case study mm-hmm. my entire third year. All my classes were like, I had one class that was negotiations and drafting, and then another class that was drafting and negotiations. I pretty much think I, I figured out how to, how to structure things so I could play a lot of poker. I love that. Yeah, so, so to, to your question about poker, actually just historically speaking, so if you look at sort of the history of the Nobel Prize, for example, and you're looking through, in particular, economists who've won the Nobel Prize, you see that, you know, since the 1950s, it's very heavy in people who are in the field of game theory in particular. And game theory is the study of really in economics, the study of decision making under conditions where you have a a lot of different people who are making the decision and where there is some sort of uncertainty involved. So it studies, for example, like ACE. Um, when uh, people have different information, like you and I might be in a negotiation and we have different, you have your information that's private to you. I have my information that's private to me. There's also luck involved. So game theory becomes really kind of the basis for studying decision-making. And an interesting thing that people don't realize about game theory is that it was based on a stripped-down version of poker. Hmm. So the father of game theory is a guy named John von Neumann, He wrote the original book called The Theory of Games along with Oscar Morgenstern, and he was basing it on poker. And here's where we get to like the main reason why poker is such a good model for decision making. People in general, like when you hear people talking about politicians or about great business people, you'll very often hear them make these chess analogies, like they're playing three-dimensional chess. But there's a reason that von Neumann did not base this whole decision theory that is game theory on chess. And it's because chess loses that really crucial element of uncertainty. It loses the element of luck in the sense that there's no real strong influence of luck on the game. Like you don't roll dice and then, you know, all of a sudden, if it lands like a six, you lose two pawns or something. (laughs) And you lose this information asymmetry thing. In other words, like you can see my position and I can see your position. But poker is not like that. Poker has a very strong element of luck. You can't control the turn of the cards, which means that I could have the very best hand. I could actually play it really, really well. And I could still lose because a card, like even if there's only a 2% chance that a card's going to hit on the last card, you know, that means 2% of the time it's going to hit. And then it also has this element of hidden information. So I can't, I don't know what your cards are. And so I have to try to guess at that. And the super duper duper, like the key component that makes it really important to think in poker terms is that this thing about uncertainty, right? Like this hidden information, this luck element that's causing this really big influence um, on the game means that in chess, where you kind of take that piece out, it creates this very, very tight connection between the quality of the player's decision and the quality of the outcome. Meaning if we play a game of chess and I make better decisions than you, I win, which means that I can go backwards. If we know for a fact that I beat you at chess, we also know that, that I made better decisions than you. But in poker, that's not true because um, in poker, just because I make better decisions than you in the short run, or on a given hand, or even over the course of a few hands, it doesn't mean that I'm going to come out the winner, which means also, you know, the obverse of that is that if all that we know is that I beat you at a few hands of poker, we actually don't know that my decisions were better than yours. And that's what makes it like an amazing model for studying human decision making. I mean, there's so much 
so much there to unpack. And, and the biggest being that a lot of us connect decision-making with outcomes, that this distinction that you're making, that you can make really bad decisions and still wind up on top or make really good decisions and still lose, most people in business do not believe that, do not understand that. Yeah. That, so, so this is something called resulting, which is that you work backwards from the decision quality to get to the outcome quality. And so this really ends up leading us astray. You have this exercise in the book uh, that you talk about that you have people do when you ask them to imagine their best decision over the last year and then their worst decision. And the outcome always mm -hmm. determines the quality of their decision. Yeah, this has worked um, like I'm not kidding 100% of the time. <laughs> you know, and what's really interesting. So, so basically what I say is like I'll come into groups and I'll say, listen, could you just all come prepared with something for me? which is, can you just all sort of write down what was your best decision of the last year? What was your worst decision of the last year? And it's essentially 100% of the time that the best decision uh, is actually the best outcome that they had. And the worst decision is actually kind of the worst thing that happened to them. So I literally have never had someone describe something to me where it was like, I made a great decision and it didn't work out well. <laughs> or I made a really bad decision um, and it actually worked out really well. And I think also like going back to your original question is why is poker such a great place to look for this? Because I think that poker really exposes that very loose relationship, you know, in a way that you can like really see and really kind of like wrap your head around, because I can't tell you the number of times that I made some really bad read on somebody. And I just thought like, if I raise hair, they're totally going to fold. And I would like had a lot of certainty around them folding, and then they didn't. <laughs> and in retrospect, as I sort of think about it, oh, of course they weren't going to fold. But then I happened to hit like the one card that I needed to win on the end anyway. Right. And, and when that happens, you sort of realize it's like, yes, I won the hand. Like I got this amazing result from it. But boy, <laughs> that was about the worst decision that I could have made to play the hand in that way. And of course, vice versa, you have a lot of situations where you know, you, you make a great call, uh, you know, it's a really tough spot. You feel like, uh, you know, someone moves all of their chips on, you know, in on you and you have a very marginal hand and you really start to think about it and you come down on the side of calling and you're right. Your marginal hand is much better than theirs and you're 80% to win the hand, you know, and then you lose because a couple more cards come. So I think that that, that particular situation repeats for you so often in poker that you, I, I think that, you know, in order to grow in the game, you have to really learn to kind of wrap your arms around that and figure out a way to learn that doesn't peg to the outcome so much. But why is, why does that matter in business? Why is it important to separate the result from the decision-making process? So, so, so there's a, there's a few, pro there's a few reasons. So, um, let me tick them off and then you can sort of tell me which, which you want to go sure. into. Uh, problem, thing number one is that if you don't, if you don't separate the results from the, from the process, what's going to happen is that you're going to end up overweighting the outcome in determining whether you think that you're supposed to repeat that decision again. So, so that's kind of problem number one is that you're going to take some pretty bad lessons and you're going to get, you're going to get overconfident in certain decisions and underconfident in other decisions in a way that's going to be really harmful to your long-term outcome. Thing number two is that if you don't separate those two things, you're really, really going to distort the risk profile, not just yourself, but also like if you're in a leadership position, the people who work for you in a way that's going to really drastically misalign the enterprise risk with people's personal risk. So I'll just kind of stop there with those two things, but they're, they're both very bad. Well, actually, there's, there's kind of, well, I'll just stop with those two things <laughs> to start. So I, I feel like there's almost a prisoner's dilemma when it comes to this honesty that you, you want people to seek in their decision making, because trying to look back on your decisions and say, I may have made mistakes here is, is a difficult process to ask people to go through because they just assume that all of their decisions were the correct ones because they made them. And if it didn't work out, it was luck's fault, like nothing could have happened, the economy, you know, whatever. 
And if they were to start reviewing, mm-hmm. that people might not see them for the competent, visionary leader that they are. There's a lot to go into there. So I, I think that in, in general, what happens is that there's a competition going on all the time. And I'll, I'll talk about it first just on a personal level for, for a, a single individual. There's a competition going on between your future self and your present self all the time in the sense that whether it's like what's best for the enterprise in terms of, you know, the leadership and the willing to really kind of dig in on process, what's best for the individual in terms of how much are you willing to focus on the process and the decision as opposed to the sort of knee-jerk reaction to take credit for good stuff or whatever, that if, if any individual, if you said to any individual, like, okay, tell me what it is that you want for yourself in the long run. I think that I, I can't think of a person who wouldn't want to say, I want to be more successful, whatever success might mean for you. I want to be happier, whatever that means for you. I want to be healthier, whatever that means for you. I want to, you know, I want to be smarter. I want to gain more knowledge. I want to be a better decision maker. Like when people think about what is it that they want for themselves in the long run, it involves, you know, some sort of upward, you know, improving path. And if you were asked them in absence of dealing with anything in particular that's happened to them, just like in the abstract, okay, do you think that order in order to get to that path, it will require that you sometimes figure out that you were mistaken, you know, that you made mistakes, that you sometimes figure out that there might have been a better decision for you to make, that sometimes you figure out that you had a good outcome, but actually you got quite lucky and you wouldn't want to repeat that decision again, or that you have to give somebody credit that maybe it doesn't feel good to give credit to so that you can learn better from them. Do you think that all of those things would be required in order for you to achieve whatever this upward trajectory is and in, in, in whatever it is that you're trying to achieve? And I, I don't think there is a, a person who wouldn't endorse that idea. Yes, I would have to, I would have to do all of those things in order to get this upward trajectory. But what happens in the moment when you're confronted with a bad outcome? What happens in the moment when you're confronted with a good outcome doesn't actually align with what you're able to say in the long run, you know, in in the abstract, rather. Because what happens is that in the moment, it feels bad. It's bad for our self-narrative in the moment to say, I made a mistake. It's bad for our self-narrative in the moment to say, yeah, I had a good outcome, but I actually shouldn't really be taking credit for that because I really, I, I think I actually really made a good decision and just kind of got lucky there. Or it even feels bad to say, I had a good outcome and actually my decision was pretty good, but I'm digging into the, you know, my decision and the process and I'm realizing that there was actually an even better decision that I could have made. Now, all of a sudden you feel like you're losing credit. So it's both sides of the coin. It feels bad to not get credit for the, the good stuff that happens. And it feels bad to take credit, to take responsibility for the bad stuff that happens in the moment. It feels like this huge ding to our self-narrative. It feels like this huge ding to the way that we feel about ourselves. Now, even though we can say the ability to do that and to actually accept those things is going to cause us to be more likely to have a long-term positive self-narrative, it's really our short-term self are in the moment self, that in the moment narrative that's in the driver's seat. And because we're all very, and this is, you know, Kahneman talks about this a lot, because we're all very much about driving that positive self narrative. And that's built out of all of the ways that we process these in the moment situations, essentially wanting to get that credit for the good stuff and wanting to not feel like we made a mistake on the bad stuff ends up in the driver's seat. And, and that, that's what wins. I teach a lot about single loop and double loop learning. Are you familiar with that, Chris Argiris? No, no. So the concept is that most of us 
operate our strategy and decision on a daily basis in this single loop where we create a strategy, we take action on it, we reflect on what happened, and then we make decisions and adjust our strategy. And that's a single mm-hmm. loop learning. That's how we problem solve every day. Like we do things at work, we react on feedback. It's how we excelled at school. It's how, it's how most things work. However, sometimes that single loop fails us. It just doesn't get the results that we want. Mm-hmm. And that's because the underlying beliefs and assumptions on which we form that strategy have a flaw. There's, there's something that we missed or has changed since we started this strategy. And it's really difficult for us to question those underlying beliefs and assumptions. And, and the most fascinating mm-hmm. part of your book for me was the discussion of how we originally formed those beliefs and assumptions in the first place. So we, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so first of all, th- thank you so much for that mental model. That's like a really, really helpful way to conceptualize this. So I, I'd never heard that before, and now I learned that, and now that's something that I can apply in the, as, as I look out and I, I sort of see, I'm processing what people are doing. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, so essentially, I think that what we kind of think is that somebody tells you something, you read something, you hear something, whatever. And then you think about it, you, you, you vet it, you, you sort of go through and you try to figure out like, you know, what are the other things I know? How, what's the quality of this information source? How reliable is the information? You know, you go through all of those kinds of steps asking something about, you know, what, what the quality of that is in terms of whether you should be forming a belief true or false about it. And then only after you go through that vetting step, only after you like go through this big triage, do you then actually form a belief true or false? So that's sort of what we think the intuitive order is that we we do this. That's that's really what we feel in our gut is what happens as we're forming beliefs. But that's not what happens. Yeah, no, not, not at all. What actually happens is we hear something and then we believe it. And then if we have the time or inclination, we might actually go ahead and vet it. So we, we really have this default to believe things that we hear. This is a, the original work on this was done by Dan Gilbert, who people might know from Stumbling on Happiness. It's really wonderful work from the 90s. And there, there's kind of three main drivers for that. Uh, the first is that for most of the history of our species, we actually didn't have language. So the only way for us to form a belief was actually like with our eyes and ear, like with our own perception. And if you think about it, like if I see a tree in front of me, there, there's really no reason to go through a vetting process, right? Like I've seen it with my own eyes. So I believe that the tree exists. And now when we form language and you can tell me about a tree that I've never experienced before, I, I essentially, you, you know, evolution just sort of built the abstract belief formation process on top of that system that already existed. So you tell me about a tree I haven't seen before and I believe it. And that's kind of number one. Number two is that we know that we've been, we're sort of selected for type one errors, which, which is meaning, meaning believing something is true that is not. Um, and that's mainly because like, if you think about it, like if you're standing on uh, the savanna and there's rustling in the grass, it's probably good if you're not standing around trying to do a triage on whether that's a lion or not. You should probably just run away. So that's another, that's sort of a default to think that things are true and to connect these things together. Um, and then the third reason that we default to believe has to do with just human discourse. So if you and I are in the same like kinship group trying to defend, you know, our territory and our resources and, and we need to be able to communicate with each other in order to do that, if I approached you with skepticism as if what you were telling me all the time was, was a lie, uh, there'd kind of be no reason for us to talk to each other. So for purposes within tribe of like human discourse, we, we have a default to believe as well. So there's all these kind of pressures on believing. And once those beliefs are in there, it's really hard to dislodge them. And the smarter you are, the harder it is to change your mind. That's exactly right. So once you have the belief, which is not formed in a particularly orderly way, it's really, really hard to dislodge it. And then the smarter you are, the worse it is mainly because 
if you think about it from the concept of sort of back to what I said, like we're all trying to sort of spin a positive narrative of our lives. So let's, you know, let's think about ourselves as our own PR agents. Like we're doing PR for ourselves all the time. We just don't know it. So if you think about who's going to be better at that kind of PR, right? Like who's going to be better at shaping a narrative that supports your beliefs? Who's going to be better at slicing and dicing data to support your belief? Who's going to be better at constructing that argument? It's going to be someone who's more cognitively agile. So in, in this particular case, and, and you can see this across a, quite a few different biases, but in the case of motivated reasoning, for sure. Also in the case of like blind spots to your own bias, bias blind spot, being smarter actually makes the problem worse. So we're doing the ads today while there's a thunderstorm outside. Yes, it's a stormy day. So if you hear thunder, it doesn't mean the ads are scary and ominous. It's just natural weather. I was worried people would think my stomach was growling. <laughs> it's none of those things. Professional AF is brought to you by HoneyBook. If you run a creative business, you know how to make your clients look good. But if you're struggling with tedious administrative tasks, let HoneyBook do the work and make you look good. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communications, your bookings, your contracts, and invoices all in one place. Consolidating is kind of all the rage. Is it? Well, you know, you always get those emails like, consolidate your debt. <laughs> and then I like consolidating, like, our laundry. How do, how do, how do you consolidate laundry? Um well, it, it makes it harder because I can't tell the difference between your clothes and Trues because he's getting bigger <laughs> and you're still not very big. And so I have to like turn the t-shirt inside out and look and I'm like, oh yeah, she doesn't have like dinosaur t-shirts. And that's consolidation. Yep. That's HoneyBook. <laughs> if you're a creative freelancer or small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services that you already use like QuickBooks, Google Suite, and MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds of thousands of hours a year. It's your business, just better, with HoneyBook. Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off your first year with promo code DIANA. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. Go to HoneyBook.com and use promo code DIANA for 50% off your first year. Get paid faster and work smarter with HoneyBook.com. Promo code Diana. So you have a really interesting approach to actually help people go into the type of critical thought that they should have done in the first place, which is you ask them if they want to bet whether or not they're right. So can you explain the power of this concept? Well, let me ask you, right? If, if, if there's something that you believe, you know, and we can think about, we can think about something Simple. So the example that I like to use to explain single loop and double loop learning is that in high school, I decided to try out for the basketball team, having never played organized sports. And my only source of nutrition knowledge was milk does a body good commercials. And I just thought the more milk I drank, the more prepared I would be. So every day of the tryouts, I just tried to drink more milk, which served me poorly. But at the end of the tryouts, you know, I had all kinds of reasons why not the milk was a problem. It was like the way that the tryouts were structured. There was too much running. The coaches didn't know what they were doing. But basically, I had a very strongly held belief that I heard on a TV commercial. Okay, so let's say that you tell me milk does the body good. That's a very good example, by the Thank way. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's it, it's such a great example. You know, one of the things that I say to people is, hey, when I'm trying to get them to understand like how loosely they should hold their beliefs, I say, hey, is there anything you believed when you, you were 20 with like absolute, absolute certainty that you no longer believe today? And the, the, uh, the response is always uproarious laughter <laughs> and usually followed by everything. Everything. <laughs> everything I believed when I was 20. So, all right. So you, you believe milk, milk uh, does a body good. And so let me just ask you, like, what if I said to you, oh, uh, do you want to bet on that? What would go through your head in that moment that I said, do you want to bet on that? Like, what are the, the things that you would start saying to yourself? I would say, okay, where did I hear that? What evidence do I have right. to support that? Have I 
seen any other evidence to support that? And is there any evidence to the contrary that you might have that you could be trying to use against me? That's essentially what betting does, is it, it, it's reminding you that, hey, there, there are actual consequences to the beliefs that you have. I'm making them very in your face by asking you if you'd like to bet any, some amount of your net worth on that belief. Um, and what that does is it causes you to actually do that, that step that we don't do, which is that vetting step. And all of those questions that you ask, and which you said so beautifully, are actually a demonstration of how you want to be thinking about your own knowledge. And you want to think about it in two ways. One is, let me think about the stuff that I know in terms of what's the accuracy of the stuff that I know. So we can think about that like as, as you're doing an internal audit of your own beliefs, which is what you were talking about there. Like, what's the evidence for what I, you know, what, what's my evidence? Where did I hear it? Have I actually researched it? Why, why do I believe that? What's the origin of the belief? Those kinds of things. So, th- so that's like an internal audit of, of your belief. But then it also makes you do something else, which is think about what you don't know. Or, or also what somebody else who's not you might know, right? So that was sort of the second step that you said, like, well, she, well, she's challenging me to a bet. So what is it that she knows? Why does she think something different? Why might the thing that I believe not be true? So we can broadly, if we want to put that into a construct, we can think about that as the in, sort of forcing you into the outside view. Um, so a lot of times when we're processing the world, uh, we're processing it through the inside view, like what are the special things that we know? And those things are essentially driving the way that we're, we're thinking about the world. The outside view is like, what is, how would somebody from the outside be viewing this? Or, or we can think about that also in terms of like what's generally true. So really, that's what, that's what this construct of like, do you want to bet forces you to do. It forces you to merge the inside view and outside view to try to get to the truth. So I want to apply this inside of a company. And how do I start thinking about my work projects as bets? So I was thinking maybe they should start talking about their work as bets. Like the bet I'm making here is this, or what is the bet we're making? Like, do you do, you do that with organizations? I do. Um, and, you know, obviously it, it's a little you know, it's a little bit hard to start having people challenge people to bets all the time. <laughs> so a lot of times what I'm trying to do is sort of get at, you know, sort of deeply, what, what is it that that construct of you, you know, are you willing to bet on it is doing for you? And then trying to, trying to build those things into the process. So for example, like there, there are a couple of simple things that you can do. One is instead of asking people, are you sure you can ask somebody, how sure are you? So if you think about what me saying, do you want to bet is, what I'm ask, actually asking you is how sure are you of your belief? Right, that, that's really what that question is. Mm-hmm. And so once I, once I switch, if I, if I say, are you sure, all you can do is say yes or no. And that's where we get into a lot of problems because what, again, what, what thinking and bets does is it says, look, it's probabilistic, right? Like, your belief is probably neither totally true or totally false. It's probably lies somewhere in the middle. If we think about like how often is a strategy going to work? How often are you going to get a particular outcome? It's usually not yes or no. It's somewhere in the middle. And what we're trying to do is think probabilistically in that way and start thinking about like how often is this thing going to occur? Whether instead of just is this thing going to occur or not? So one of the simplest things you can do is to just say how, how sure, how sure are you as opposed to are you sure? That, that's a big step to doing it. Another thing that thinking and best does is it makes you think about how would, wh- why am I wrong? Right? Why is this thing that I believe not true? And you can also build that into process as well. And you can build that in a couple of ways. One is once you re- reach conses- consensus to actually create what's called a red team, and the red team must go and argue against the consensus in a way that someone who truly believed that the consensus opinion was wrong would, would think that they had argued the position better than they could have. So they have to go and actually approach, what, why do we think we're wrong here? And what that does is 
first of all, sometimes it just exposes that the, the consensus opinion is actually not the right way to go. But but the other but it's regardless of if you do end up going down that path that you've all agreed to anyway, taking that extra step to really have someone go do a deep dive on why it might be wrong exposes weaknesses and stress points. And now you can start thinking about given what was exposed by the red team, how can we actually think about how we could increase the probability of success and decrease the probability that these things that they're arguing against become true. Sometimes it causes you not to completely reverse course, but just to calibrate. So that's that question that you asked when I said like, well, do you want to bet that milk's really good for you? It's like, well, why might this be wrong? What other thing could be true? So that that's another way that you can build that kind of thinking and bet style into a team. And then a third thing you can do, again, you know, approaching it from that attitude of how does this look from the outside is if you have, for example, a long-term strategic goal or a short-term strategic goal, uh, you can do an exercise called a pre-mortem, which basically says, I, I have a, a strategic goal. The timeline for this strategic goal is a year. Let me imagine that it's a year from now and I've failed or we failed as a team. Why did that happen? Why did this failure occur? And be, again, it, it's sort of changing the mindset within the group to think about why might we be wrong? What, what are the things that might go wrong as opposed to what are the things that might go right? And a lot of the, the problems in the way that we think is because we're naturally thinking about why are we right? Why will things go well? And we're not thinking about what does it look like to be on the other side of that bet? And so these are different processes that you can put in that force people to be thinking about what would it look like if we were on the other side of the bet. I think the idea of the pre-mortem is connected to the concept of setting self-imposed loss limits that you talk about, which is like the recognition mm -hmm. that you will probably not be thinking clearly if things are not going well. So you're going to set some kind of numeric limit that's going to say, you know what, it is time to reconsider, like relook at this project. And in business projects, there are rarely lost limits. I call these failure metrics or pivot indicators for companies, just a number mm -hmm. to let you know that things are going in the wrong direction and you need to reconsider and you set them up during this pre-mortem period. Why is this practice so important and why do people so rarely do it? <laughs> okay, so, so let me start with the second question first. Why do people so rarely do it? So one of the... One of the issues that happens on teams naturally is that they want to be teams. So the, the people on the team want to feel like they're team players. And the question is, what does it mean to be a team player? In general, it sort of drifts toward this, well, first of all, this confirmatory style of thought where, which means that we all want to be on the same page. So generally, we want to, we want to sort of be agreeable, right, with each other, which means that we want to agree with each other. And those two things should be separated but we don't separate those things very well. And so we just think, oh, we should all agree. And then we don't want to be that person who's saying, but this could go wrong and this could go wrong and this could go wrong because it doesn't really feel like you're being a team player then. So team player sort of turns into this concept that it, what it really means is cheerleader, right? We're going we're gonna to cheerlead and we're going to sort of feel like we're successful. And as we imagine the future and as we imagine executing on the goal, we're going to be imagining around how well we're going to do it and how successful we're going to be. And this makes us feel like we're a cohesive unit. And that, that process feels great to people. And that's sort of naturally where teams end up going. Where teams don't like to go is, is to think about failure. It's, it's really painful for individuals to think about failing and it's painful for teams to think about failing. And so why don't people think in advance and imagine this kind of failure route, well, because it, it doesn't feel very good and it feels like you're naysaying and it feels like you're being pessimistic about the quality of the team or the quality of the strategic plan. And so people tend to shy away from it for that reason. It's just not naturally, it's not naturally a place that people feel super comfortable. The reason why it's really, really important is because if you think about it, it, it's kind of the same idea of like, what's the competition between that future version of you who wants to have this sort of improving 
slope, you know, like this increasing happiness or increasing success or whatever. And in the moment, you know, that really bad feeling of feeling like your narrative is taking a ding. You can see, you know, you can, you can see this kind of happening as well here in the sense of you have this competition between what's going to cause the most success in the long run versus what does it feel like to imagine the failure right now? And being willing to imagine the failure right now is something that we should be willing to do because it's actually more likely to create the success. Because in imagining a failure, what you see is all the things that can go wrong that you might not otherwise anticipate. So if we're willing to say, you know, for example, like, I mean, we can think about it this way. Like, imagine that we say, like, my goal is that I want to lose 10 pounds in six months. Um, and I'm imagining that I'm, I'm, I'm succeeding at this. The things that I'm going to imagine as I sort of write that narrative are like, I, I was really great. And I went to the gym and, you know, I ate healthy food and I stuck to my diet plan. And, you know, I got to buy new clothes. Right. I got to buy new clothes and so on and so forth. So that's what's going to come up in the narrative. Right. But if I imagine it's six months from now and I failed to lose 10 pounds, why did that happen? Now I'm going to get to like, there were donuts in the break room and that was really hard for me. And I ate those all the time. And I really imagined that I was going to get a lot of happiness from this because people were going to notice that I lost weight, but then people didn't notice. And that was really hard for me. And I was really sad. I didn't have time to make sure that I had healthy food in my purse. And life got away from me because I know this from the past that this happens to me all the time and I couldn't make it to the gym. Now, notice how much more useful that is because now what you can start saying to yourself is, okay, these are all the things, these are all the stress points. These are all the places where my plan will break. What can I do to decrease the probability of those things happening? Sometimes there are places where you'll see like, oh, well, maybe this very unlucky thing intervened. And you can ask yourself, well, could I reduce the chances that that, that unlucky thing happened? You could ask yourself, is there an available hedge against that unlucky thing occurring, which you wouldn't notice if you were imagining the success side. You won't see where you need a hedge, as an example. Or at minimum, you can say, well, I can't really control if this unlucky thing happens. But what I can do is already have a plan in place for how I'm going to react if that unlucky thing happens so that when it does happen, I'm no longer reacting emotionally to it. So that I'm prepared in advance. So now I have a rational plan in place and I'm not just being reactive. I'm actually prepared that that's going to occur. And now you can start to sort of think ahead for how can you actually create success by avoiding the obstacles. And those obstacles you don't readily see by imagining, by imagining the success in the same way. People don't do it because they feel like they're not a member of a team. But as soon as you actually do as a team game, a pre-mortem, now you get to have your cake and eat it too, because being a good team player becomes imagining the places where you might not succeed. And that's how you actually contribute in a constructive way to the team, because you sort of change the rules of the game. And now you've let some of those more pessimistic or skeptical voices breathe and have life on your team. And you want those voices to breathe and have life on the team. Right. It's important to talk about this stuff when everything is happy and peachy and rosy and before you start making bad decisions to protect yourself. Well, particularly because, uh, you know, sort of as, as you said, in terms of like stop losses, the, you know, these slippery slope decisions, like these stunt cost decisions are really, really dangerous. And you can get yourself in a situation where in advance, there's no way you would have said, like, if things were going, you know, a certain way, like the metrics were showing us that, uh, you know, a certain, a certain thing that we would be continuing, we would be stopping before then, like, it, it, you know, and then all of a sudden, because you haven't planned ahead, you're in the middle of it, and you sunk like $2 million into a new strategy, and there's kind of no end in sight. And it doesn't look like any point at which profitability is going to occur. And it just, you're just putting 2 million more into it. Because you don't know what else to do. Right. Because you haven't thought about it in advance. And you haven't, you haven't sort of put those like stop gaps in place. You haven't 
set in advance the points at which you would reevaluate. You haven't thought in advance, if this occurs, this is where we need to pivot. And let's think about what those pivots would look like, for example. You haven't done any of that work because all you thought about was, we're going to launch the strategy and, and we're awesome. Support for Professional AF comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose the template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way that you want. You know, I've been thinking and having a website is like the new business card or whatever the equivalent of having a business card was 10 years ago. I'm always very suspicious. I agree with you because I'm always very suspicious when a company doesn't have a website. Like if I'm thinking of using a service or like a product and I look on the web and there's no website, I just think like this must be a criminal enterprise. <laughs> well, so if you're thinking about starting a business, make a website first before you get business cards. If you want even more for your website, you can easily start a blog, launch an online store or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools that you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this very podcast. Unless your business is a criminal enterprise, and then I would suggest not Don't leaving. have a website. Yeah, don't leave that kind of footprint. Unless yeah. it's some sort of fraud that you need it. But still, I don't want to endorse it. Don't do any of those things. I'm just saying. Like, no criminal enterprises. Yeah. I'm sure that it's in their rights. It's in their, like rules of engagement, no criminal enterprise. Well, I just want to be on record that I'm opposed. Yeah, we are definitely opposed here. But if you have a legal, lawful enterprise, Wix.com is your source. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their websites. So create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash professional AF to get 10% off. Packages, packages, packages. Don't waste any more time waiting in line to send mail and packages. Avoid any confusion around finding the best postal rates for your business. With SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes, you can send packages and mail without leaving your office right now from your desk for as low as $4.99 a month. What I like about this is that I think about many things in terms of what would I pay to not have to do this. <laughs> and like, uh, like we pay somebody to mow the lawn because I just got to a point where I was like, I would pay money to not do this anymore. <laughs> That's what this is like. Yeah. Or a counter example to that is we groom our own dog and she's a pretty big dog. Uh -huh. And the first time we did it, it took us about five hours. And I thought I would have paid a lot of money to not have to do this. We're going to get better. We're going to get faster. And that's what I'm saying. I'm sure that as that time goes down, like the next time we groom her, I'm going to be like, this was worth saving the money. So this so this is like the second time of that. This thing is like right away you get your return on your investment on your time. Right away. And for being a professional AF listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started. As an added bonus, you'll also receive a free 10-pound scale shipped right to your door to help you accurately weigh your packages or the amount of dog hair that you've just cut from your dog. It's like 10 pounds. <laughs> Starting at only $4.99 a month, you can print shipping labels and stamps from your own printer, easily compare rates using their online software, gain access to special USPS savings for letters and priority mail shipping, and track all your shipments and get email notifications when they have arrived. You can cut your own dog's hair, but you can't deliver your own packages. So this makes sense. Just go to pb.com slash professional to access this special offer and get a free 30-day trial plus the free 10-pound scale to get started. That's pb.com slash professional. Experience the better way to ship with a free trial of SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes. Okay, so the first part of the book is really talking about the importance of being a truth seeker for somebody for whom objectivity matters. Mm -hmm. And the second part of the book explains why truth seeking happens much more effectively in this team effort. And I, I like to think about how people say, you know, you're the average of the five people that you hang out with the most. And, and the team that you have is going to have a huge effect on whether or not you are a truth seeker. And the example I like to use is that if you think of yourself as a healthy person, but your team orders pizza for lunch every day, then you're a pizza eating person. Mm -hmm. So have you worked with any companies or teams that have tried to make this shift to being truth seekers as a team? And, and what are the new habits that they've adopted? 
so generally what you're trying to do is realize that the general dynamic of, of a group, which is what are you rewarding each other for? Um, you don't, the fact that you're rewarding each other in some way with social approval or, you know, approval in general um, doesn't go away, right? So a truth seeker doesn't mean I am immune to worrying about the way that other people feel about me. That is not what that means. It doesn't mean that you're disconnected from the need to be connected with other people on a similar mission. It doesn't mean that you're disconnecting from the need to feel like you are part of a team and you belong to that team and you are distinct from other teams. Those things are all so basic to the way that human beings operate. That is not what I mean. You know, that is not what truth seeking means. Truth seeking means how do we figure out a way to have all of that stuff, but make it so that the reward system is rewarding behaviors that move us toward accurate representation of the world as opposed to just feeling like we're right. And, and by feeling like we're right, I mean like our beliefs are true and we're great, which is sort of the way that we sort of end up in these, you know, in these um, echo chambers where we're all sort of echoing each other's beliefs and cheerleading each other. And that's sort of what the reward is coming from. So Basically, it's how do you create a commitment to accuracy such that the kinds of things that I need as a human being, which is to feel good about my own self-narrative, that stuff that I said was in competition, actually now starts to align with what's long-term good for me, um, such that what feels good on the team aligns with what's long-term good for the enterprise. And it's through changing the rules of the game, changing the rules of the reward system. So, so like, for example, one of the clues is by doing pre-mortem, by, do, by doing red team exercises, where when you do a pre-mortem, what's being rewarded is figuring out why you're going to fail. That's what being a good team member is on that team now. So that allows you to think from that skeptical standpoint, from, to think about how does this look from the outside in a way that allows you to have this belongingness to the team. And in fact, the fact that you're willing to do this exercise, you know, and you should reinforce is distinct from what other teams are willing to do such that it's going to cause your team to have like a, a special sauce, like a special secret that's going to help you be more successful in the long run because you're willing to do these hard things. Likewise, red, you know, red teaming does that as well, where you're willing to argue against yourself. Creating a culture where the leader, for example, is willing to withhold their own opinion and their own beliefs and allow the people on the team to give their opinion before they offer theirs. That's a very hard thing to do because as leadership, it's very natural to think that your opinion is really, really important data. But once you offer up your opinion to the team, you're now going to distort the way that their opinion comes to you, which is going to be much more likely to create an echo chamber. So demonstrating that by withholding your opinion and then reinforcing when people disagree with you, now what you're doing is you're saying, we're celebrating when someone disagrees. There's other things that you can do too, which, which really get this reward system to change. So as an example, there are teams in which I've instantiated this exercise once a week. You're going to have a meeting and everybody, you're, you know, everybody's going to come and you can pick and choose who, you know, which ones you want to actually deconstruct, but everybody's going to come prepared with something really great that happened, a great outcome they had that week. But what they have to talk about is the mistake, the biggest mistake they made on the way, the biggest mistake they made on the way to that outcome, where they think their decision-making could have really been better. Now, notice what happens is, again, you're changing the team game where it almost, it almost becomes a com competition. Like, who's better at, like, finding the great mistake that becomes the discussion point? Who's better at disconnecting this good outcome from the decision process so that you can start to poke around in order to improve decision making? Who's, you know, when you're on the team, admitting a mistake now starts to get reinforced. Giving other people credit now starts to get reinforced. 
because that starts to become part of sort of your tribal identity. And I, I kind of think about it like this. There's no human being on earth who kind of voluntarily would put themselves in the line of, you know, an oncoming lion just on their own. Nobody would do that. That's really hard. But if your tribe is standing behind you and by you putting yourself in the way of that lion, you will save the tribe, you are now willing to do that. So when we start to say this is part of the group belongingness, is the willing to be able to do this kind of thing, that allows people to do these things that naturally are kind of hard. And when they do them, they actually feel rewarded in the moment. So you, you can actually do that through these kinds of exercises to get people closer to that ideal. Nobody's ever going to get there perfectly, not in a million years, but you can get closer. And th- that, th- those changes are going to really realize big differences. I think that's so powerful. You know, a lot of companies talk about being more innovative and, and having an event where they inspire people to be innovative. And I always say, no, no, no. Show me what you're celebrating inside the office every day. Show me the award that you give for somebody right. who came up with the most innovative idea. Show me the weekly habits of every team, and then you can see whether or not they're being innovative. And this is such a beautiful way to articulate that. I, I would love for you to just to give me a couple more habits that you've seen teams develop to be more of a truth-seeking team. So I'll, I'll leave you with a, a last one because there's a few habits in there. So um, there'll, there'll be a couple habits in this one strategy. So, you know, if we kind of go back to what the beginning of the discussion was that has to do with this outcome dependence, right, that we're sort of judging everything on the outcome. One of the things that we, we can think about is that once we start judging, judging things on outcome, what are people generally going to be afraid of? They're going to be afraid of having a bad outcome, right? Because they're going to be judged on it. And if they have a bad outcome, they feel like they're going to have to defend it. And that's really awful. And they don't like that. And they try to avoid that. We're trying to, as human beings, we're trying to stay out of the meeting where people are asking us why we had a bad outcome. We don't like that. And two things can result from trying to stay out of that room. Thing number one is that our risk profile could get distorted in, in the sense that what we do is we make decisions to try to just minimize loss. Because if we can minimize either like the number of losses we have or the size of the losses we have and just minimize that, now we can sort of stay out of the room. So that's going to be somebody who's, who's making uh, decisions that aren't optimal. They're, they're, they're optimal for staying out of the room being yelled at, but they're not optimal in terms of what you're, how much risk you should be taking on, right? The other thing that that person might do in order to get out of this kind of conundrum is that they might be driven to make a lot of status quo decisions, consensus decisions. They're going to be unlikely to be willing to innovate because decisions that are innovative by definition aren't very well understood. So if you have a bad outcome, you're more likely to get blamed for the decision quality than if you choose a status quo choice. So that's that idea of like failing conventionally. And when we fail conventionally, we're just less likely to be blamed. So we're sort of driving people into that box. And so, so this, this is one of the best things that somebody can do in terms of, as a, in, particularly in a leadership role, to actually help to solve for this problem is to not make it that you only get in the room when you have a bad outcome. So what I come across a lot is people who are saying, you know, we're very process driven around here and we don't, you know, we don't really worry about outcomes. We worry about process. We worry about process and decision quality and this is what we're about. And then I sort of, you know, explore in the organization. And what I find is that the only time that they're doing any kind of postmortem is when it's actually a postmortem. In other words, when the patient is dead. And the only thing that's really getting them in the room to dive into process is when there's a downside outcome. You know, the, the, one of the examples I give is like you, you invest, you're, you're inve- you know, you're a real estate investing group you invest in a property and the appraisal comes in 10% lower than expected and everybody's freaking out in the room trying to do a process dive on the model. Um, but when the appraisal comes in 10% higher than expected, this meeting does not occur. And what people need to realize when they do that is that 
It doesn't matter how much the words process come out of your mouth, how much the words like we care about decision making comes out of your mouth, how much to your point, you're saying, we're going to have a conference about innovation and we love innovation. How much that thing comes out of your mouth? It doesn't matter because everybody knows, oh, I only end up in the room when I have a bad outcome. So I'm going to try to avoid those. And if I do end up getting in the room, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to cover myself. So I'm certainly not ever going to do anything that's really innovative because otherwise I'm going to be under the gun. So what I try to get people to do is say, what really should matter is unexpectedness. It shouldn't matter whether it's 10% on the downside or 10% on the upside. Both of those are unexpected outcomes. Both of those are equal signals that there might be something wrong with your model. Both of those are equal signals that you may have underestimated the risk in the decision. And in both cases, it could be that your model is fine and they were tail events. You know, I mean, all of those things could be true, but you need to be exploring both of those things the same. The minute that you do that, what you tell people is, I care about your accuracy. Like I care about your ability to forecast. I don't, I actually, in reality, don't so much care if it's to the good or the bad. I just care about whether you predicted it properly. And now you're actually living what you preach. Now you're living that what you care about is process, is process and not outcome. And if you're not doing that, if you're, if you're just popping the champagne bottle, when things work out better than expected, you are sending the absolute wrong message to the people who work with you. My God, that is so huge, Annie. Uh, do you think that we should just be teaching people how to play poker and not these lessons on decision making? Don't you feel like that would just be as effective? Well, you know what I would say is that, uh, yeah, the answer is partially le- yes. In the sense that we should be playing poker and teaching people how to think through poker hands because these biases are so powerful that what you see all the time from poker players, from many poker players, not all, is kind of the same thing as that, what I just described in terms of meetings, right? Like when they lose, they're looking for the opportunity. They're really seeking out the opportunity to blame that loss on luck on something that they can control. Like, well, I played the hand right. I played the hand the way everybody plays it. What could I do? Right, they're, they're seeking out that opportunity. And when they win, they're like popping a champagne bottle, <laughs> taking credit for the win. So you see this behavior from poker players as well pretty strongly. And that's where I think it's like, how are you taking what that problem has to offer you and actually parsing it in a way that will actually speed learning up and particularly parsing it in a way that's going to prevent you taking the wrong lessons from just thinking like, well, I I won really big, so I should just do that again because I'm a great player, you know, or I lost really badly. Let me figure out how I could sort of explain that away with luck. And I think that what you see from the, the really, the, the players who have been successful in the long run is that they don't do that thing is that they're just as likely to come up to you and be like, I won this hand and boy, did I butcher it. Boy, I, I, I really can't believe this. I, I totally made a mistake. I had the person on the wrong hand. You know, let me ask you about it. Let me think about what the better line was. And on the losing side, they're much more, they're going to be much more willing to take, take on credit for having lost. In other words, take the responsibility to dig in with their own decisions, to, to think about how, how the way that they played the hand might have create, created the loss. And interestingly enough, a lot of times what a poker player will say is I lost, but actually if I had played the hand better, I should have lost more <laughs> on the hand. And that's like a really interesting thing that they're willing to say that, that I think is also like really revealing. So I think that you have to have the things, you know, paired because just teaching people poker isn't quite enough because once you allow luck into the equation. Once you allow hidden information to the equation, it can actually become a way to offload responsibility for bad stuff happening to you. And so you also have to have that teaching on top of it. That if you really want to become good at this, you have to be willing to not take that sort of easy exit out of the responsibility. And you have to be willing to take on responsibility for anything that happens during the game. 
Annie Duke, thank you so much for this incredible book. Uh, we covered a lot in this episode, but there's so much more content inside the book. It is an incredible read, and I I think I'm going to be gifting it to many of my clients this year. So thank you so much. How can people find you online and follow your efforts? Oh, um, thanks for asking. Um, so I, they can find me at AnnieDuke.com. And at AnnieDuke.com, there's a few things you can do there. One is you can um, subscribe to my newsletter. So there are archives of the newsletter on there. It goes out about every week. Um, the reason why I say about is I'm in the middle of a, my next book. And so it's a little bit slower at the moment. But um, I, that's actually taking um, sort of what's happening in the world today and applying this kind of thinking to, you know, sort of what's happening in science or in business or in politics or current events or so on and so forth. So you can look at the archives before you subscribe. Subscribing to the newsletter is free. You can also contact me there, either just if you have a question or you want to, you know, interact with me in some way. I love hearing from people, hearing what they think, the way that they apply this stuff in their own life. You can also hire me there. You can also go to howidecide.org, which is a nonprofit that uh, I co-founded. And what we do there is try to build the field of decision education so that we can think about how can we bring these decision-making concepts and education around how to make better decisions to youth and start to get it into, er you know, into early education. Uh, we have a focus on middle school, but it's across the board, um, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, so that, you know, people are, are really understanding, like, what is a decision? How do I construct it? How do I think probabilistically? How do I think about what a habit is? How can I change that? What does it mean to be decision fit? Um, and we're really trying to build that field and get people excited about that in order to start making that part of the curriculum for kids these days. And then the other place you can find me is on Twitter at, at Annie Duke. Awesome. I look forward to staying in touch. And thank you very, very much for this amazing content. Thank you so much. This was really fun. To me, the most powerful thing about this conversation with Annie Duke was that it really took a deep dive into so many different blind spots. Most of us would never think that we need to be better at decision making. That's just not the book that we drive to the bookstore to pick up. And yet the lessons that Annie outlined today are going to serve you in every single thing that you do. I've been applying these lessons in both my professional and business life ever since we chatted. I mean, this is such a silly little thing, but I've started conducting pre-mortems before asking my son, who's five and a half, to do something. And then thinking through all the different reactions that he could have and everything that could go wrong and preparing for those things, that has significantly altered our interactions for the better. I could actually make a list as long as the entirety of this episode about all the different tweaks that I've been able to make as a result of this conversation. And I want to hear about how it's affected you as well. I'd love for you to come join us in the private Facebook group for the show. It's called Professional AF Podcast Insiders. And it is full of professionals like yourself who are always interested in improving themselves. Come join the fun. We would love to see you there. Okay, guys, this marks the end of the first season. I'm taking a small break to do an after action review with my producer, Brock, my husband, Jason, and everybody who's been involved with the show so that we can come back bigger and stronger. So please, if you haven't done so already, please submit a review for the show. Please join the Facebook group and let me know what you think. I want to know what you like, what you wish was different, what topics that you would love to see covered on the upcoming episodes. I've got 39 items remaining on my list, and I cannot wait to be back in your ears, helping you grow, get unstuck, and really just unleash your full potential on the world. In the meantime, I am Diana Kander, and I believe with all my heart that curiosity is your superpower. Whatever goal you seek to accomplish, asking better questions is going to get you better results. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>